Bless. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone? Good. It's good to be with you. I thought I wasn't going to make it yesterday. I've got a cold and I was losing my voice. So um, pray for me as I preach. If I lose my voice, Carlos is going to come and take over. Make it up. Handsome uh, foreigner. <laughs> Great. Looking forward to seeing a load of you this evening at the uh, Gateway Christmas Carol service. So as Carlos said, 5 p.m. here, come and belt out some carols and bring your friends. It's a great time of year to do that. And we officially kickstart the Gateway Christmas Countdown. Exactly. Uh, this morning, we are completing a preaching series that we've been in at various points uh, throughout the year, and especially uh, the last few weeks. It's a series called Enjoying God, and it's based on this excellent book by Tim Chester. Um, that's the cover up there. You can come and ask me about it afterwards if you like. And I think this is going to get my award for uh, Book of the Year. If I could uh, have kind of one book to recommend to you to read, this would definitely be it. I found it um, really helpful, theologically rich. It's easy to read. And uh, it's, it's really helped me to do what it says on the tin, which is to enjoy God. The very concept of enjoying God is an interesting one. What does it, what does it mean to enjoy God? What does it mean to enjoy anything? What, what does enjoy look like, and how do you know when you're doing it? The Bible tells us to do lots of things to God. We're to love God, to worship God, to serve God, to pray to God, to obey God. Now, for the most part, you can put some measurement against us so you can know when you're doing it, and, and therefore, of course, when you're not as well. And often I think that's why we lead with these activities in the way that we approach relationship with God. I can usually tell you how long I've spent praying or worshiping or reading his word, and I can either leave myself feeling positive or, or guilty about that. It's, it's empirical. It's, it's data. I can give you an answer about my relationship with God on those terms, and uh, then you can formulate an opinion uh, uh, on my relationship with God based on that answer. But if you look at some of the other things that Scripture commands us to do in this context, try and apply a similar set of analytics to them. Scripture tells us to rejoice in the Lord. It tells us to delight yourself in the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to be glad in the Lord, to find strength in the Lord. It's much more difficult to kind of grab hold of and measure that, isn't it? How delighted in God are you right now? How glad in God have you been in the last week, in the last year. You can tell me that you're planning to read the Bible from cover to cover next year, and that would be great, but what are your delight targets for next year? How do you intend to enjoy God? And how will you find strength in God next year? In other words, let me ask you this question. How are you enjoying God? And it's quite possible that you're doing all the right stuff, all the stuff I've just talked about, and the answer to that question is still not at all. In a moment, we're going to get into our passage, but as we do, I want to say something that should kind of hover over everything else that I say this morning. God is eminently enjoyable. I'm not talking about salvation or the stuff that he's done or what he's provided or how he's healed you. God has done all that stuff, and they're all reasons to be thankful. But I'm, talking, I'm not talking about the gifts. I'm talking about the giver. I'm talking about God the person. How much do you enjoy God the person? God can be and is meant to be enjoyed. I, I enjoy eating medium rare steak. I enjoy cooking it. I enjoy spending time with it. I enjoy savoring it. Now, that might not be your thing. I appreciate that. And I don't want to lead you to believe that um, in some way relationship with God is, is just another consumable item. It's, it's not. But 
relationship with God is meant to be savored and enjoyed. I, I think one of the key reasons that we don't enjoy God in the way that we should is because we mess up. We, we get things wrong. We sin, and then we feel ashamed, and then we hide, and then we feel like we've let God down, and then that feels like the relationship's broken, and then we feel like we've got to do godly things to rebalance the scales. And if that's true for you, then you're constantly going to be working hard to stay in a relationship with God, and that's not enjoyable. It's like eating that medium-rare steak and enjoying a mouthful and then realizing you've got to rush out and do the shopping. And then having a, another mouthful and then ha- having to go to work. And then uh, having another enjoyable mouthful and realizing, oh, I've got to fill up the car with oil. You'd get enjoyable, tasty moments here and there. But the enjoyment comes from patiently and deliberately savoring the experience and exploring it and engaging with it. And not feeling a deep sense of shame about what it's doing to your waistline. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's enjoyment. This morning, I want to look at a passage of scripture that addresses this issue. It's all about repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness are not particularly modern words anymore. So if you're new to this or if you're a guest here this morning, bear with me, and I'll try and unpack what these concepts look like for us in the here and now, and then you can make a decision about what you want to do about that. And I want to suggest to you today that in repentance and faith, we can enjoy God and we can savor God's freedom. Let me read to you from Psalm 32. We're going to read the first seven verses. It's going to come up on the screen behind me, or you can follow along in the uh, Bibles on your seats or in the pouch in front of you. It's on page 560 if you want to have that open as I read and as I talk this morning. Page 560, Psalm 32, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You, Lord, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Such a great passage of scripture. This is King David. He's um, a real-life bloke, just like all of us, writing out of his own personal experience of this issue. Um, We'll look at it uh, in a little bit more detail in a moment. But essentially... What he's saying is, thank God for forgiveness. I've done so much wrong stuff, and it's weighed on me like a, like a heavy oak beam and was starting to get into my bones and rot me away from the inside out. But when I fronted up to it and I confessed to God all my wrongdoing, he forgave me instantly. And the weights and the fear and the shame, they all came off, and I felt free again. And I was free to enjoy you again. I was blessed. I was happy. This this psalm answers this question. Who are the truly happy? Who are the blessed? And the answer is this. Those who are forgiven. Verse 1 and 2. Blessed, happy are the forgiven. Verse 3 and 4. Because before I confessed my sin and knew your forgiveness, life was miserable. And I felt distance from you. And that's miserable. If you're somebody who has no relationship with God, if you don't know Jesus, 
whether or not you consciously know it, you'll be carrying the effects of broken relationship with God in some way, either in your emotions or your behaviors, because we're always looking for someone or something to give us meaning and purpose and acceptance. And you can kind of get those things through a number of different routes, but you can only fully and finally know those things in relationship and enjoyment with God. And that's because we're all imperfect, and life's imperfect. And that means as try as you might, from time to time, people are going to let you down, and circumstances won't live up to what they've promised. But God (coughs) never stops being perfect, and he never stops being perfectly good towards you. And that means that it's only our own experiences, only our own actions that prevent us from experience enjoyment in God. Let's look at how this passage explains that. I want to teach you four Hebrew words this morning. You up for that? Great. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. The Hebrew word for transgression is pasach. The same word in the Bible may be used for rebellion, the kind of rebellion of children against parents. According to this verse, happiness, therefore, is a life lived no longer in rebellion towards God. You may say, well, I'm not in rebellion towards God, but because we are created by God and for God, the Bible teaches that if you're not for God, you're against him. We are therefore in rebellion, pasar towards him, and that will at some level cause us brokenness, and it'll ultimately lead to eternal death. Pasar is dangerous. Also in verse 1, blessed is the one whose whose sins are covered. The Hebrew word for sin is hatach, which is a word used to describe a bowman missing his target. That's what sin means. If living for God is the target, and it is, it's the bullseye, sin is what draws your life off the bullseye. Accordingly, living your life heading in the right godly direction, no longer aimed off target, is the goal. It's the blessed life. Verse 2. Blessed is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. The Hebrew word for deceit is remiach. This word has a kind of sense of treachery or betrayal about it or of not being reliable. It's like a weapon that backfires in your face. It can't be relied to function at the uh, critical moment. The weapon that blows up in your face is remiach. Accordingly, living a blessed life is to live in a, in a way that's reliable and forthright. And then verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. The Hebrew word for iniquity is avon. This word means to be bent over, to be crooked, to be misshapen. Accordingly, happiness comes from living a life straightened out and living upright and walking in the light. But this is really important, and I, I want us to kind of understand this this morning. The issue in these passages isn't actually sin or transgression or iniquity or deceit. Don't get me wrong. These things are destructive and harmful. And if you don't root them out, they'll eat into your bones and overwhelm you. But the issue here is confession and repentance and forgiveness. And that's because Jesus has dealt with sin. We'll get stuff wrong. We'll sin. But Jesus has dealt with that. When he was first heralded in the desert by John the Baptist as he approached him, how did did John address him? He said, behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is. Sin sin will happen. We are sinners, but we are saved by grace. We are saved by Christ's death on the cross, which cancels out sin. That means that every wrong thing we've done, 
everything is no longer counted in the ledger column, which says all the reasons that you should go to hell. Jesus is the savior of the world because his work on the cross means that these things are forgiven by God. You're forgiven by God. Therefore, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, our union with Christ is not up for grabs. It's a settled and finalized issue. And so keep that in mind. And I don't want to give you the impression that sin is trivial because it's not. But I am saying that Jesus has dealt with it. And actually, what's important here is how we respond to it when it happens. And this passage passage tells us that confession and repentance are key to unlocking the kind of forgiveness that brings you back, if you go back to my metaphor, to the steak table, so you can enjoy the whole meal and savor it. In other words, if you're living for Jesus, it's not your union with him that's up for grabs, but your communion with him, your relationship, your enjoyment of him very much is. And I believe that one of the key reasons that we don't enjoy God as much as we should is because we don't repent as much as we should. To, con- to repent is to confess your wrongdoing, and it's to turn away from sin. To turn away from remiach, from avon, from hatach, and to confess them to God, and to choose to live a different way. Just look at verses 3 and 4 and think about a time Uh, when this might have happened to you in any relationship you've been in, let alone your relationship with God. David said, when I kept silent, in other words, when I kept my sin, my wrong attitude, my rebellion, my secret destructive behaviors to myself and persisted in them, in other words, when I didn't repent, my bones wasted away. For day and night, Lord, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I was, um, I was once in a pretty broken relationship with a family member for 18 months, and uh, we'd, we'd both said some silly things, and the relationship had completely broken down. And for that full 18 months, I only realized this afterwards, I felt tired and drained and unhappy, like I was carrying an anvil on my back. The broken relationship weighed heavily on me, literally. If sin breaks relationship with God, it's no wonder that King David felt the same way. This is a man, King David, about whom God said, he's after my own heart. And King David went out and killed a man so that he could sleep with his wife. I imagine that might affect my relationship with God in some way and how I felt in his presence. And so to continue down that course of behavior would ultimately sever relationship with God. And after that, it's just downhill all the way. So what do we do about it? What did David do about it? We confess and we repent. Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Can you imagine that conversation between David and the Lord? God, you know how you brought me out uh, as an obscure farm boy and you helped me to kill a lion and uh, you helped me to kill Goliath, the most fearsome Philistine warrior, and you protected me time and time again from a king who was trying to kill me. Um, You know how you've raised me up over all your people, and you've appointed me to bring temple worship back to your people, and you've entrusted me with the nation of Israel? Um, Well, I need to tell you that I've killed a man so I can sleep with his wife. Next verse, and God forgave the guilt of my sin. When the Bible says that God is abounding in love and mercy, here's a pretty good example. 
There's no gap between repentance and forgiveness. God doesn't say, I'm still flipping angry with you and I need to consider my next move before we speak again, like I had to do with my daughter a few weeks back when she stood on my laptop screen. David said, I will confess my transgressions, my natural propensity to rebel against God, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That is good news, Gateway. When we talk about the gospel being good news, this is what we mean. In light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, by pouring out the full tariff of our crimes, our rebellion against God on himself, shielding us from the crucifixion that we should have experienced. In light of that, when we mess up, so long as we go to God with truly repentant hearts and confess our sins, he forgives us. He looks at us and he says, your sin, your consistent missing of the mark, your deceit, your rebellion, your remiach, your hatar, your propensity for crookedness, you should really be cast away into the wilderness from the presence of a perfect God and left to die in that wilderness. But Jesus did that for you. And God says, I know that you're dust. I know that you'll get it wrong. And because of Jesus, that union that I have bought for you and I now, will never be broken. Now come back into communion with me and enjoy me. I, I wish I was that kind of father. That's why over the Christmas period, we often read from Isaiah 9 verse 6, which says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, listen to this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's who we worship this morning. Because the Prince of Peace endured pain, we can know peace. His punishment has become our peace with God. And we can know the mercy and the love of an eternal Father. I'm not a big fan of Christmas, but I'm critically bound up in Thanksgiving for what it represents. That the person of God comes to us as a baby, lives amongst us with all the pressures of life, doesn't sin, doesn't rebel, doesn't ramiach or avon even once. He sees the desperate trouble that we're in as rebels against God. We're separated in relationship. We're destined for hell. And he says, I've got this. I'll make this all right. I'm pulling the family back together again. No cost to you whatsoever. I'll go to the cross. A perfect sacrifice on your behalf. You might know this, um, up until that point in history, the way that the people of God made amends for their sins was like this. One day a year, it was called the Day of Atonement, the high priest would choose two goats. One of them would have to be perfect, without blemish or broken bones or anything. That one would be sacrificed as uh, a substitute for the penalty of sin. The other one had the sins of the people confessed on its head, and then it was driven from the camp. It was a powerful picture of sin being removed from us as it disappeared over the horizon. That's where we get the term scapegoat from, when someone's made to take the blame for something they didn't do wrong. And year after year, they would have to do that. Goat sacrifice, goat sent into the wilderness, sins removed. And then they'd all mount up again, and then the next year, day of atonement, goat sacrifice, sins confessed on the goat, goat driven into the wilderness. And then it would happen over and over again until... One day, the perfect sacrifice took away our sins forever. Jesus became our scapegoat, and our sins are so effectively removed from us now that when God looks at us 
even knowing our weakness and our inability to uphold his perfect requirements, he sees Jesus. He sees the work of the cross. He sees a perfect sacrifice for sin. And in us, he only sees what Jesus has made right. That's what the word righteousness means. Righteousness is just an old word for rightness. We are right before God because we say yes to Jesus and we partake of all that he has done. There's two issues here. Number one is that we are sinners and we will sin. And number two is we must repent. Repentance is to show sincere remorse and to turn away from repeating the things that causes us brokenness with self or with God or with others. The key is not to trivialize sin. I don't want to give you the impression this morning that it's okay if you sin because you can repent. You've got to fight sin. The, the battle we, we need to fight, we need to win. We mustn't compartmentalize sin in some way either. Thinking we're mostly doing well, but we'll just la- allow ourselves a little secret sin on the side as a treat. That too will become like an anvil. That too will waste away your bones. God will not be mocked. He's not a pushover. I know a guy who lived his whole life as a disciple of Christ. He raised a godly family. He fought for the gospel. He led a community of God's people. He upheld the truth of the scripture in so many ways in his life for decades. And all the while, he was being completely unfaithful to his wife. And when I found out about this and asked him about it and said, how did you manage to come to the communion table with a clear heart every Sunday, knowing this double life you were living? He said to me, I just compartmentalized the sin. I just left it in a place that I didn't want to examine when I was with the people of God and with God. Needless to say, that guy's life and relationship have exploded in the most destructive way. There's no enjoying God when we're living in sin's treacly dark grip. The only thing you can enjoy is the sin itself until it starts to do what sin always does to a person. Turns on you with with murderous intent. Because the father of deceit, the father of sin, is Satan. His very name means enemy, troublemaker, accuser of Christians, father of lies. He says, come, let me show you something that will give you a little pleasure. Something that will take away that pain, that depression, that sense of insecurity, that sense of unworthiness. I've got something you'll like. A bit of secret pleasure that no one else needs to know about. Think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan said, Eve, did God really say that you shouldn't eat the fruit? What's the harm? You won't die. In fact, you'll become better. You'll become like God. What's the possible harm in that? <laughs> and so Eve was deceived. There's that word again, veremiach. And instead of doing what God warned them, living by faith in his word, she and Adam used their eyes and saw that the fruit was good for eating. Look at, look at what's happening here. Instead of trusting God and his word and living by faith, they used their eyes and they walked by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 tells us that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. And when Adam and Eve reversed this order, all of humanity fell. And that has been the anatomy of sin ever since. We walk by sight instead of by faith. And That's why Jesus figuratively told his followers that if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Throw it into the fire. Get rid of it because it's better to lose an eye than for your whole body to be cast into the fires of hell. And yet even in that moment in the garden, look what happens. It says that following that disastrous choice by Adam and Eve, God came walking in the garden and he called out to them, where are you? He knew where they were. He's God. The question that he asks is much deeper than about their location. It's about their condition of spirit towards him. Where are you? 
Gateway Church, in this season, as we look to celebrate the King of Angels, as we prepare to sing Hosanna in Excelsis, where are you? God comes to us now as he came to Adam and Eve, walking in the cool of the day, not in the terror of night. He calls from afar, where are you? He came to Adam and Eve as he always had, walking in the garden. And the only reason they had to hide was their own guilty conscience and their awareness of their nakedness. And they blamed each other, and they blamed the serpent, and they turned on each other. Sin, deceit, iniquity, rebellion had taken a hold and destroyed them. And yet God comes to them walking, not in a fiery chariot with lightning bolts waiting to zap them. He comes to us the same way today. He comes to you today if you don't know him, and he says, where are you? I believe this morning that God wants to call us, to call his people to a new and deeper level of intimacy and enjoyment of him. If you're caught up in sin, if you feel isolated, embarrassed, or ashamed, or stuck, or addicted, there is hope. There is always hope in the gospel. There is always hope in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you this week or after the service, get in touch with one of the leaders and ask them to pray for you that uh, God might set you free. God is in the freedom business. If you believe what he says about himself, he knows your sin already. Why not turn to him and confess and call out to him for forgiveness and for restoration of relationship? And as people, this is super important. We are on a mission for God to set people free for him. That's what this message is all about. It's freedom from sin to enjoy God. There's, there's no shame in confession and repentance. We don't do shame here at Gateway. Christianity is not a religion of shame. In um, Hosea 11, one of the books of the Bible, it, uh, it, it, it says these words. This is God talking about his people. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the idols, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught them to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. God sees and understands that we aren't the finished product. He knows that as we, we come to him completely unable to help and save ourselves. He refers to us as children, children that he helps to walk and talk. That's what we do with toddlers. We don't uh, come down on them like a ton of bricks for soiling themselves. We help them to know how not to. He knows that we are largely unaware of the ways that he works in our lives. He steers us away from disaster. He heals our wounds and illnesses and brokenness. He is, after all, throughout all of Scripture, fundamentally referred to as a father. This is what fathers do, the good ones at least. How much more for you, the eternal father? He lifts you to his cheek. He stoops down to hear you, to feed you. This is how I know you can enjoy God through repentance and faith. This is how I know that he's slow to anger and forgiving and deeply desires that you come and restore relationship with him quickly. Because in that same passage in Hosea, after describing his own children as utterly rebellious idol worshippers, worthy of death, he says this, How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. 
I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate you. That's why Jesus came. What's not to enjoy about a relationship like that? What's not to enjoy about a God like that? One that is irrepressibly forgiving of your worst crimes against him. Whether you are a believer in Jesus or not this morning, God has not given up on you. His compassion is aroused towards your plight. All of his fatherly instincts are on full alert for you. In Scripture, we, the people of God, are referred to as the apple of his eye. The apple is the pupil, the innermost part of the eye. And I'm told that every upper body reflex is designed to protect the apple of the eye. That's what God is like towards his people. He's longing to save you, to heal you, to help you to turn away from the things of this earth that offer so much and deliver so little. It's what I long to do with my own children. I say to them, listen to me, not because I'm egotistical, but because I know stuff about life that you just don't. And therefore, listening to me will keep you safe. And your safety and well-being is of prime importance to me because I love you. So it is with God and us. And that's why verse 6 and 7 of this passage are such an important conclusion. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. That's a, that's a direct reference to the flood waters that wiped out humanity in their hardened, hardened unrepentant sin uh, in the time of Noah. And thinking just, to, just once again for a moment about how Adam and Eve hid from God in their sin, Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. There is, for everything you've ever done, forgiveness and acceptance in Jesus this morning. I don't care what you've done, what you're carrying, and how long you've been carrying it. I don't care how high it feels like the floodwaters are around your neck. If you turn to Jesus, and if you say sorry for sin, and your deceit, and your iniquity, and your rebellion this morning, the floodwaters will not overwhelm you. Our scapegoat has gone to the cross and taken all of our sins with him. Our day of atonement has arrived, and it's a free gift to you this morning. The word repentance means turning. If you flee from temptation before you have a chance to act on it, if you turn instead to the God who saves, if you stir your emotions to remember embracing God is so much more enjoyable and satisfying than embracing sin. If you reach out to your brothers and sisters here today for help to do that, refusing to trivialize or compartmentalize when you've eaten the forbidden fruit, if you stay close to God's instruction for your life, Jesus says, said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, if you believe that and if you live by that, then you will know God and you will have increased relationship with God and you will enjoy God. God's word says, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Are you thirsty? Has life left you feeling partially quenched? Or does the water you're drinking have a nasty aftertaste? Come drink of Jesus today. It's free. Come drink from the spring of the water of eternal life. It's pure and it's ongoing. That spring has always been flowing. That river will always flow. 
then your story will be like David. The same David whose sin and struggle we've just studied. The same David who sinned and rebelled against God and felt the pain of relational separation before turning back to him in repentance and faith. That same David said, and this is my prayer for all of us this morning, I have set the Lord before me always. And because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Should we pray? God, I thank you so much that you are the kind of eternal father that we read about in scripture who we can fully and wholeheartedly trust. King Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the day of atonement of day of atonements. Thank you that your sacrifice for us is full and final and there is nothing no height or depth, there's no flood water, there's no angel or demon, there's nothing in all of life or death that can separate us from being in your love. I thank you, King Jesus, that this morning, that's where we find ourselves, that our union with you is a settled matter. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that they'd be stirred in their hearts, that if there's wrongdoing, if there's sin, if there's rebellion, if there's remiach and hatar that needs confessing and repenting of, this morning would be the morning they'd do that, Lord God, in order to uh, restore communion with you, in order to restore relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are a forgiving God. Thank you that you are a forgiving God. Jesus, we love you. Be glorified in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Should we stand together? Let's uh, respond. Let's come to Jesus.